three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to dip back in time to 1988 and a recording of a talk by Ralph Metzner at the Transpersonal Vision Conference. Now, Ralph has been mentioned by several of our past speakers, but this is my first podcast in which he's the main speaker. As you may know, Ralph was a German-born American psychologist, writer, and researcher who worked with Leary and Ramdas at Harvard. Sadly, uh, Ralph died in 2019. In addition to being a psychotherapist, Ralph was also Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. As you'll hear, Ralph begins by talking about the connection of Germanic mythology to the Nazis. He then goes on to say that if you can't deal with the story of your ancestors, you can't really deal with your ancestors. And considering the rise of the neo-Nazi movement here in the States, as well as in Europe, this message may be even more timely today than it was in 1988. On a more positive note, however, I suggest that you pay close attention to Ralph's idea of the new berserkers, warriors of the earth. If nothing else, it'll remind you of how long people have been calling our attention to the planet's environmental problems. Now, here's Ralph Metzner. Questions about Germanic mythology and the fate of Europe. Most of us are of European or partly European ancestry, and the fate of Europe and the fate of North America are closely intertwined. This particular line of investigation began for me several years ago when I had a dream in which I saw one of the giant Olmec Mesoamerican stone-carved heads. And as I looked at this head face in the dream, and I had had at that time no knowledge of or um, connection to Mesoamerican myth or uh, art or architecture, as I looked at this stone head in the dream, I realized to my amazement that the face, the head, was uh, alive that I could sense um, a little bit of breath coming through the nostrils, and I could sense a kind of a flicker behind the eyes, which were closed. And I got a thought in my mind, very distinct, that said, the old gods are awakening again. And that dream began a series of uh, synchronistic events um, with which I was led into a deep interest in the Maya and the meaning of the Maya hieroglyphs and the Mayan calendar and um, the kinds of investigations that uh, some of you may know the work of Jose Aguelas, uh, who has taken this line of work very much further uh, than I have. And um, this was very intriguing to me, particularly because I had no connection with the Mayas or the Mexicans uh, in my own ancestry. Um, and 
Simultaneously with that work, then I also began to realize through the kind of work that I've been doing with uh, shamanic practices and studies, and studies in various altered states of consciousness and in a therapy, realizing that the importance of connecting with one's ancestors. And since my ancestors were Germanic and Celtic, my father being German, my mother Scottish, um, I turned my attention more to the um, Germanic and Celtic and old European uh, stories and mythology and began to ask myself questions about, well, what is the shamanism or was the shamanism of the ancient Germanic or European peoples and what remains of it and what can we learn from it? And what can we learn from the mythology of these peoples? Because I've come to understand mythology as the stories of our ancestors. Our myths are the stories our ancestors told about their journeys, about their shamanic journeys, about their quests for knowledge and healing, about their battles and wars, their love relationships, their discoveries, their triumphs, and their failures. And I began to understand how the European ancestry includes not only the ones that I was brought up with and most of us are perhaps most familiar with, the Greek and perhaps the Mesopotamian and the Egyptian and the Semitic and the Celtic and Germanic and due to most recent discoveries about the pre-Indo-European peoples that existed and had cultures, high cultures in Europe prior to the invasions of the Indo-Europeans, the, the Aryans from Central Asia who invaded India, the Mediterranean and Western Europe in wave after wave of invasion from the, about the fifth, fifth millennium BC onward. So I want to focus today particularly on Germanic mythology out of this whole complex of our ancestry, of our European ancestry. And Germanic mythology has, as you well know, uh, a rather bad reputation. This reputation um, is associated, uh, an interest and involvement and deep involvement of Germanic mythology is associated with the figures of Nietzsche um, and Wagner and uh, the Nazis who basically uh, appropriated certain themes from Germanic mythology to their own um, ideological and propaganda purposes. It is, however, the case that in Germany to this day, and, and people in, of Germanic uh, extraction feel a considerable uh, uneasiness um, about any interest in Germanic mythology. Uh, some people feel a similar uneasiness uh, about interest in Wagner's music because Wagner himself was interested in Germanic mythology, as you well know, and the Nazis themselves also liked uh, Wagner. So there's almost a kind of a feeling that I've actually heard expressed in Germany um, 
from friends there uh, that uh, we don't want to go that route because look where that route led before. And it uh, dawned on me, uh, and I'm sure it's something that can easily be appreciated, is that um, what that means then is that if you can't deal with the stories of your ancestors, you can't really connect with your ancestors. There is like, a, as if it were a barrier at the generation, one generation back, the generation of the parents of people my age, born either during or right after the war, um, who had no direct first-hand experience of the Nazi regime and the genocide that it imposed and the Holocaust that it imposed on the European situation and the world. And so um, there are groups now that I've had some association with in Germany who have begun to do some, what to my mind is very important work in closing this rather uh, extraordinarily acute generation gap, and we all have a generation gap, but in Germany it's of a very particular nature. And there are people beginning to do very important work in this. For example, uh, last year two books were published. One is interviews with uh, Jewish survivors of the Nazi regime, and one is uh, children, and one is interviews with the children of Nazi families. And in these uh, group uh, processes that uh, I know of, um, they have developed something that could be called rituals of reconciliation. Reconciliations with the first generation of ancestors, our parents, our first generation of ancestors. If we can't communicate it with our parents, we can't communicate with any ancestors further back than that. It's pretty obvious. So first, the barrier of communication with that group has to be broken down, and very significant steps are being taken now. And I think this, uh, these steps are important for all of us, not only for Germanic or European people, and those of us that are directly or indirectly related to them, but for all of us, because uh, they are an example for all of us uh, of the kind of reconciliation between people of different cultures, races, religions, ethnic origins that needs to take place because the world, as you know, is in a state of permanent warfare between peoples. So the religion of the ancient Germanic peoples was an animistic religion. It was a pagan religion and it was a panentheistic religion. Animistic means that all of nature was seen as a lie. It was pagan, meaning it was a, a religion of people that lived in the country. Paganism means the religion of people that lived in the country. Paganos is a country dweller, like Paisanos. Like heathens are the people that live on the heath. The country dwellers are the people that preserve the connection to nature and the awareness of the aliveness of nature spirits much longer than the people that went into the cities and put walls of stone around the cities, like we all do. We have lived in cities for five or six hundred years, that's um, 20 generations or more. 
how long most of us have been disconnected from living in the country. Religion of the paganism is simply the religion of the country folk who preserved the animism, the knowledge of nature spirits much longer and thereby, of course, incurred the wrath and the disapproval of the established churches. So the, ancient, the religion of the ancient Germanic peoples was a religion that uh, venerated uh, the spirits of nature. The deities, the gods and goddesses, were the gods and goddesses of mountains, of forests, of rivers, of sky, of wind, of fire, of ocean. They were nature deities. The temples were sacred groves, as among the Celtic people, a similar kind of situation. There were four kinds of be classes of beings that were recognized to exist. There were human beings, there were gods, there were actually two families of gods, which I'll come back to a little later because it's very important. There were giants and there were dwarves. Giants were the people, were beings, great forces, immense energy beings that lived in areas where humans did not live. They lived in the, in the wild, frozen north. They were sometimes hostile or uh, generally unrelated to humans. Unlike the gods, the gods had an intimate intercourse communication with humans, two-way communication with humans. The dwarves were beings that lived under the earth. They were the masters of metal and iron and mineral, and they were capable of fashioning weapons and tools and jewelry with great skill. In this animistic pagan panentheistic religion, panentheism meaning religion in which God is seen in everything. There is great ecological relevance, therefore, to the project of reconnecting with the religion of our animistic ancestors. Many people have, uh, such as the historian Lynn White, have pointed to the fact that Christianity um, is at least in part to blame for, or to, responsible for, a kind of theology that encourages an exploitative, domineering attitude towards nature. And so this ancient European animistic religion and worldview was wiped out by a combination of Christianity and technology, a double-headed assault from which uh, effectively um, killed and wiped out the ancient religions because the Christians came in and made the old gods, uh, Odin, the chief of the old gods, was made a devil, equated to the devil. Freya, the goddess of love and fertility, was equated to the chief of the witches. Uh, the sacred groves were cut down Charlemagne cut down a famous tree, the Irmanzul, which was the tree um, that represented the world ash, the central axis of the ancient Scandinavian Nordic uh, religion in the 8th century, signaling the demise of the ancient beliefs. 
So the ancient gods were forced into retreat by this practice. And this um, uh, double-headed attack on the ancient religion was uh, culminated, of course, in the Inquisition, uh, which was also uh, partly motivated by religious reasons, the domination of the church, and partly by the domination of the rising scientific medical establishment, which feared the competition of the witches who knew the herbal wisdom of the ancient peoples. And the genocide of the witches uh, um, equates to, in numerical terms, easily uh, and perhaps exceeds the genocide of the Jewish people in the 20th century. People have described this attitude, this attitude of Christianity combined with the rise of technology as an attitude as that is biophobic and necrophiliac. Life-fearing and death-loving. I'd like to focus on the figure of Odin Wotan because this figure is uh, very interesting, the central figure, really, of the Germanic pantheon, uh, and a figure that the Nazis, interestingly enough, did not deal with at all, um, and did not understand, as they didn't understand, really, Germanic mythology. Even although Jung, at the beginning of the war in 1936, wrote an essay on Wotan, Odin Wotan, it's the same figure, in which he warned and said, well, here's Wotan, the old Germanic storm god, and he's again storming uh, through Europe. And uh, I believe, however, that this was a misinterpretation on Jung's part. The, uh, the storm god aspect of Wotan is an aspect, it is a relatively minor aspect. Uh, and in any event, the Nazi phenomenon, when you look at it, really, uh, has very little resemblance uh, uh, to the cult or the religion of Odin Wotan. Odin is more the Nordic name, Wotan more the southern Germanic people's name for it. Odin is a name that means something like a friendly or auspicious god, Huldfall, as the Germans say. friendly, auspicious, and also the, the word Ode has something to do with inspiration. He was the god of poets and seers and soothsayers, uh, prophets, poets, the skulls, the, the god of inspiration. It was said that Odin, that poets and seers were seized by Odin in a kind of inspirational uh, not trance, uh, not channeling, but inspira- uh, inspiration, really inspired, I think would be the appropriate term. Wotan, on the other hand, does, that term uh, is related to the German word Wut, which means rage. So there you do have the aspect of storm. He was also the god of warriors. The warriors themselves, the warrior castes among the ancient Germanic peoples, were people that uh, looked at uh, the uh, warfare as a kind of um, trance, practice warfare as a kind of trance. There were the berserkers. The berserkers, which means people that wear bare pelts, bare circus, bare skin carriers. So this ties back to ancient Asiatic shamanic practices of adopting, a, uh, putting on a bear pelt or a wolf pelt, a pelt of an animal, in order to attain the strength of that animal whether for hunting or for warfare. 
And the berserkers had the reputation of uh, putting on these bear pelts and then going into battle and being completely fearless and uh, also drinking some kind of intoxicating mead, which may have been the fly agaric mushroom or some mixture involving that. Um, and then there is the later figure of Wotan then as the storm god who rides with his warriors and his Valkyrie maidens, who were the battle maidens who took up uh, warriors that fell in battle. Uh, through the sky on his eight-legged horse and so forth. So this is an aspect of Wotan, Wotan Odin uh, that I want to mention um, uh, because there is that feeling that somehow maybe there's a connection there to, to uh, you know, the, uh, the later uh, phenomena. Uh, there's no doubt that the Germanic people were definitely into warfare. They were into warfare in a big way. Uh, Tacitus already pointed this out, the Roman historian, and uh, they have continued to be into warfare for a long, long time. Um, the, the kind of warfare, though, the kind of uh, uh, mass warfare where you have uh, millions of people organized in a uniform way marching uh, is a very different kind of warfare from the warfare of uh, um, these uh, berserker warriors. This is a very individualistic kind of path. Why did the berserker warriors, why were they so fearless? The clue to it is that um, they had the belief that if they died in battle, they would be taken by the Valkyries straight up to Valhalla, and they would live then in Valhalla with Odin, till the end of time, the uh, twilight of the gods, where they would have one big final battle. So that was actually their goal. That was what they desired. If they didn't die in battle, if they died of sickness or injury or, or accident in some other way, they would go to hell, the underworld, a very undesirable way of dying. So therefore, they did not fear at all. They did not mind if they died. This was the secret to their life. That's why they could you know, not use their shield, not put on any armor. Uh, and just ride into battle totally unafraid of any wounds, because if they were killed, that was it. That was what they wanted. It was a kind of a self-sacrificing. It was a fanatical willingness to sacrifice oneself for the sake of the battle, kind of a battle trance, or rausch, as the German word rausch is kind of a combination of ecstasy and intoxication. I do think that there is such a thing uh, um, as the... Uh, as a, the new berserkers, and this is a vision that has come through from several different sources, uh, transformed warriors. I believe that the new berserkers, the transformed warriors, will be warriors of the spirit, warriors of the earth. They will fight for the earth, to preserve the earth, to protect the earth, not against each other and not in a uh, and they will have that same kind of fanatical devotion to the preservation of the earth, which I personally happen to think is something that is needed. And I also think that in that image of the transformed berserkers who are warriors of the earth is the key to the question that plagues the whole issue of nuclear war and war and disarmament the question of economic conversion. How are we going to turn the swords into plowshares? How are we going to turn a heavily militarized economy around 
so that millions of people will not be out of jobs. If we can't figure out how to do that, we will never abolish war. And I see that the potential is in converting the technology of war into the technology of preserving and restoring the environment, the Earth. This is what's needed. So, um, I want to go on to the story of Odin, three stories of Odin. Odin is equivalent to the Greek Mercury and Hermes. He's the seeker for knowledge. He's the god of poets, truth-sayers, seers, prophets, as well as warriors. He has affinities to Mercury, to Hermes. Uh, uh, he's uh, therefore also uh, the, the planet Mercury, which is where we still have the, the word, our word Wednesday is the Mercury day, is a Woden day. See, the Germanic people, uh, Celtic people called it more Woden, Woden, Wotan, Woden, and Odin. It's all the same figure. He was often pictured as a man uh, wearing uh, a, a long cloak um, and uh, a wide-brimmed hat, which he had to disguise the fact that he only had one eye as he walked among humans on Earth. He only had one eye, a wide-brimmed hat, a long cloak, a staff, accompanied by two wolves and two ravens who sat on his shoulders called Hugin and Munin meaning thought and memory. These two ravens, thought and memories, went around the world and gave him, brought him information, knowledge, thought into the future, memory into the past. Odin wandered around the world consorting and conversing with humans, dwarves, giants, gods and goddesses, he even, uh, he was insatiable in his thirst for knowledge. He would even, was known to consult with dead people. He would sit under gallows and wait for people to die. It was said he had a way through magical formulas and magical herbs to be able to get the dead to speak to him. The insatiable, insatiable quest or thirst for knowledge is a key to the European psyche. It's the same myth as the Faust myth, which is the later central myth. The one who will understands that, believes that, or seeks knowledge, and is willing to pay the price for that, realizes that a high price has to be paid. Faust, of course, would be the example of the one who pays too high a price. There were these two families of gods. Odin was one of the Asir, and then there were the Vanir. The Asir were included Odin and Thor, and Odin's uh, son Baldur, and Frigga, the, uh, Odin's wife, the kind of Hera figure. The Vanir included Freya and uh, her brother Freyr, who was the god of the sea, Freya, the goddess of the land, and so forth. But interestingly enough, the, these two families of gods kind of coexisted. Actually, in a, uh, the stories are that they often kind of had struggles and battles and fights with one another. The one theory is, which I lean towards, is that the Vanya were the gods of the old Europeans that lived, that were the uh, agriculturalists that lived um, in Europe before the Indo-Europeans invaded. 
The Aesir were the Asiatic sky gods, analogous to the Aryan uh, Vedic gods that invaded India and the Olympian gods that invaded the Mediterranean. Patriarchal uh, sky god uh, figures, and the other one, uh, the other ones were the original, the remnants of the uh, mythology of the ancient goddess cultures. Uh, some of you may know the work of Maria Gambutas, who has uncovered this old European uh, cultures that uh, date back to 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 BC, that were goddess cultures living peacefully in Europe prior to the Indo-European invasions. So Germanic mythology, as Greek mythology, as Mesopotamian mythology, is actually a blend of these two cultural myth uh, stories. And so the stories of the conflicts of the Azir and the Vanir really plays out this continuing conflict, which was not only I mean, a great deal of it was suppression of the goddess cultures by the male sky god cultures, patriarchal things. But there was obviously also, this was, went on over hundreds and hundreds of years, intermarriage, blending, hybridizing, and so forth. Okay, three stories about Odin that illustrate his role. The first story is where Odin hangs himself voluntarily on the tree Yggdrasil, the giant ash tree that's the central axis of the world that holds the lower world, the middle world, and the upper world together and is the mainstay of the world. He hangs himself on this tree and there is a song in the Edda in which he sings this song. I know that I hung on the windswept tree nine days and nights, pierced by the spear, sacrificed to Odin, myself to myself on that tree whose roots are unknown. Myself to myself, an extraordinary line, the lower self to the higher self. Self-sacrifice, in the true meaning of the term, a voluntary crucifixion. Neither food nor drink did they give me. I leaned downwards and took up the runes with a cry, and then I came down. <coughs> Nine great songs I learned from my mother's brother and of Odvrir, the noble mead I drank, the mead of inspiration. Odvrir means the drink of inspiration. So Odin hangs himself on the tree, sacrifices himself, and is able to this is basically a shamanic initiation, an ordeal type of initiation. No food, no drink, pierced by the spear, hanging nine days, nine nights. And then sees the runes. On the ground, he sees the runes. He discovers that there is a secret language of nature. Runes is the secret language of nature. It's like the I Ching trigrams or hexagrams. The runes symbolize animals, uh, elements, plants, trees. They are the secret language by means of which we can communicate with nature, by means of which we can do divination and oracular prophecy. For knowledge is his search for knowledge through studying the language of nature. The second story is the story that he went to this well. It was called Mimir's well. Mimir was a giant who was one of his ancestors. His, he was descended from giants. Mimir guarded this well at the foot of the tree, Yggdrasil, 
and it was said that if you drank from this well, you would obtain great knowledge. He wanted to get that knowledge. The price that was demanded for the ability to drink from this well was he had to give up one eye. He gave up one eye voluntarily. This is what he was willing to pay. So this is what Odin's challenge to any truth seeker is. Are you willing to pay the price? He figured, I only need one eye, basically, to see the outer world. I want to have this mead, this drink from the well that will give me the ability to see the inner world. Subsequently, the Vanir uh, killed the giant, Mimir, who was the uh, uh, guardian of this well, and sent the head of the giant to Odin. Odin, it was said, preserved the head, the skull, by means of herbs and magical formulas. He used it as an oracle. He would have it sitting on the table next to him, and he would talk to it. It would talk to him. So what is that? There are sham Asiatic shamans who will use the skull of their ancestors as an oracular thing. This is knowledge of the ancestors. This second story of Odin points to the thirst, the quest for knowledge through connection with the ancestors. Mimir, the giants, were Odin's parents and grandparents. And the skull was a way of connecting the knowledge of the past and the future, because the ancestors have knowledge of the past and the future. And Odin learned uh, oracular divination, which he then in turn, he, he was the god who inspired, he learned it actually from the Vanya in this way and from Mimir's uh, head. And he uh, then was, in a, in among the Germanic people, very interesting that there was this class of seers. They were women. The women were uh, believed to be, have a special aptitude for seership. So there was this class of seers called vervas, who were professional seers, seeresses. Um, and uh, they originally, they were also, Odin was their god, but also originally was actually from the old goddess uh, Freya and the Vanya, that that was learned. The third story is, in, is a very interesting and complex story, um, which I'll only just indicate very briefly. Um, the time came when the two families of gods decided to make peace and stop their warfare, the Asir and the Vanya. They sat down together in a large circle, and they each spat into a great vat or cauldron. And from the combined spittle or saliva um, in this um, cauldron, um, a being was born referred to as Quasir. And this being was said to be incredibly wise. And uh, I think personally that this is a code. There are no other references to this figure Quasir in Germanic mythology. Um, some friends of mine and I now actually believe that this may be may have been a drink, a plant. Uh, so this being uh, Quasir was said to uh, give uh, have great wisdom, and great insight and knowledge. The dwarfs um, kill the being, it is said, and make this drink out of the blood of this being. And uh, they then uh, squirrel it away somewhere, and they give it to some giants, and the giants take it away and guard it. Giants often you know, guard things, whether it's a pearl or a treasure or a maiden or whatever, and they don't really know what to do with it. They just guard it, and they keep it. 
And so Odin then has to get it. So um, he goes through this incredibly complicated series of maneuvers in order to get it. First, he's, uh, The first series of things he does is he breaks all the rules. He kills and murders a bunch of people. He makes some oaths and promptly breaks them. Um, he uses de de deceit, treachery, tries to steal it, um, breaks all the rules in order to get this uh, uh, drink of great wisdom, which he feels we, the gods, must have this. And he also wanted to have it for gods and for humans. And uh, But it doesn't work. None of this treachery, murder, um, deceit, breaking the rules, none of it works, although this is what he feels he has to try. He finally uh, comes to this mountain, and behind the mountain are the giant, that uh, is the giant Tess, who holds the, this drink this mead made from the blood of this being, Quasia. So he turns himself into a serpent and screws through the mountain like a, a serpentine kind of screwing, turns himself into a screw bit and bores through the mountain in order to get to the giantess. He finds the giantess and he seduces the giantess and sleeps with her three nights. And then she allows him to have uh, uh, the drink, which is in three big pots, to have a drink from it. But he drinks the whole thing and turns himself into an eagle and flies off, carrying the thing in his mouth, in the eagle's mouth, and uh, dropping some of it to the ground uh, on his way back to Valhalla for the other gods. And those where it falls onto the ground, certain plants come up, and this is where the humans get it from. So it goes back to the gods. So this is a, a shamanic uh, story turning into a serpent, then an eagle, boring through the mountain, uh, the unification with the female. But what's the essence of that story? This is the, the quest for knowledge that comes from peacemaking, from harmonizing, from reconciliation of the warring opposites. Remember, it came from the Vazia and the Anya, the former enemies getting together, combining their life juice, their life force. This all-knowing be being came out of that. Then it was squirreled away and, and fought. It has to be one. It has to be one. You have to work for it. So, three lessons that we can learn from these three great stories. One is... Odin learns the language of nature. We need to learn the language of nature. The old nature gods don't die. Gods don't die by definition. They're immortals. What happens is that they go into retreat. They withdraw when humans, you and I, no longer talk to them. We no longer talk to them because we no longer believe they exist. Because other priests came along and said, those gods are no good, they're evil, they're bad, and they don't exist anyway. First they are evil, and then they don't exist. So the gods retreat. The Gutta Demerung, the twilight of the gods, is not the death of the gods. It's the sleep of the gods. So if they are consulted, see, we, our language of nature is purely scientific. It has no spirit. It has no religion. Religion and science are completely separated. So the language of nature, the runic language of nature, is the spiritual language of nature. It's nature as spirit is, inspirited. The second story is, tells us, connect with our ancestors. Know the stories of your 
Germanic, your Celtic, your pre-Indo-European ancestral roots. The ancestors have a vested interest in helping us. Just like we would have a vested interest in helping our children and our grandchildren. Of course we want to help them. Especially when we know that we've screwed up. Our ancestors know they screwed up. We're trying to undo the karma, the bad karma created by our own ancestors' misguided actions. And we're trying to do it without their help. They're very willing to help, but we have to connect with them. We have to ask them. This is the importance of connecting with the ancestors. And towards a world where we can honor the cultural uh, and ethnic pluralism and diversity that exists on this world, so everyone can be seen to contribute something. Every unique individual, every tribe, every people has some unique part of the overall tapestry of life that it wants to contribute, needs to contribute, for this whole global planet to work as a planet. And finally, the lesson of the third story is the lesson of reconciliation, the knowledge that comes from love from loving instead of fighting, from love and reconciliation and harmonizing instead of killing and warring, whether it's between different religious sects, religious wars, and so forth. So Christianity, I feel, needs to go back and do a reconciliation with animism, the animism that it wiped out. It didn't need to do that, you know. Buddhism, when it went into various countries such as China, Tibet, Japan, did not wipe out the local animistic religions. On, on the contrary, it reconciled with them, it blended, it harmonized with them. Christianity wiped it out and tried to do wiped out the Native American religion, same way, south and north. It didn't need to do that. And it has a major karmic debt and situation to undo. It's not a matter of going back and becoming uh, Vodin worshippers again. That's not the point. The point is to integrate those two traditions and the Judaic and the Islamic, all of the ones that have existed. They're all part of it, all part of our history. And out of that then may come the drink, the juice, whether this is an act, actual psychoactive chemical or not, we don't know. It doesn't, that's not important. It's the essence, the essence that comes out of that harmonizing, peacemaking quality that then becomes the mead, as it was called, the mead of poets and soothsayers, of those who know the truth and can speak the truth and who can have the inspiration. The twilight of the gods, Ragnarok, that was foreseen and prophesied by the ancient Germanic peoples is to me uh, the events of the past 2,000 years. That's the twilight of the gods. So the combined onslaught of Christianity and science and technology wiped out the old cultures, the old religions, killed them, wiped them out, genocide on a major scale. The ancient visions of the Ragnarok say there will be a great wolf who will devour the sun. And there will be a great serpent Midgard that will strangle the world. Perhaps these two animals are Christianity uh, and the, uh, uh, the, the technology, which is um, destroying uh, nature and destroying the spirit of nature, of which we are a part. And the Ragnarok ends in a giant conflagration we're now in the midst of a planetary heat wave, as you know, uh, which may end up turning vast areas of the planet into desert. After the Ragnarok, the old visions say, there is a resurrection. It's not final, the whole thing comes around, it's cyclical. Uh, Baldur 
Baldur uh, is there again, the, uh, the old sun god. And there is a line where it says, the daughter of the sun will travel through the sky in her path. So the feminine principle, the solar feminine principle, and a new race of human beings living in a green and beautiful land, it is said in the old sayings. So this is the, uh, the story of the Ragnarok, which to my mind has already happened. We're at this present time, I believe, in the last phases of it. And the new and green earth will come out of that um, if we can just stay with it long enough. Thank you very much. Considering the fact that Ralph began by bringing up images of the Nazis, <laughs> well, I must admit that I was very pleased with his positive ending. At least it was as positive as we can get these days when thinking about our environmental problems. As you may know, I'm no fan of organized religion, but Ralph's suggestion just now about bringing animism back into Christianity is, well, it's the best suggestion for Christians that I've heard in many years. I hope that this idea begins to uh, maybe seep back into our culture before it's too late. And just a little personal side note here. The first time that I heard Ralph give a lecture was at the big ayahuasca conference in San Francisco at the end of 1999. His topic was about not giving up on our expectations about a psychedelic experience if they don't come about quickly. He talked about an experience during which he attempted to reconcile with the death of his son, it was a powerful story in which it took six months for his intention to be realized, but then it happened in a major way. At that time, I didn't know the story about his son's death, but several years later, I became friends with Cactus Phil, who was in our ayahuasca group. Many years earlier, Phil and Ralph and their families were living in an intentional community, and one day their sons went on a bike ride, but Ralph's son didn't make it back. He was hit by a train. What struck me when Phil told me that story was that for over a decade or more, Ralph wasn't able to shake the black memory of that tragedy. Yet all those years later, Mother Ayahuasca finally healed Ralph Metzner. For me, the moral of that story is that if you don't give up on psychedelics, well, they won't give up on you. Ralph was an amazing man, and if anyone has more recordings of his talks, I'd love to borrow them and post more of his wisdom here in the salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.